Well, welcome back to Pillar of Truth. As we continue our series called How to Be a Faithful Steward, today we're going to shift our focus to Luke chapter 16, where we meet a less than stellar manager of a large estate. As you're going to hear today, this man's motives are unrighteous. Travis, when talking about money and stewardship, and ultimately the motivation behind all of our decisions, what are some guiding principles that would help to clarify our motives? Well, this steward in our story, we might call him the prodigal steward. We had the prodigal son back in Luke 15. Now we got the prodigal manager, the wasteful steward, who's wasting his master's possessions. If we look at him in the story and see when he got his act together is when he feared losing his job. All of a sudden, he becomes diligent, resourceful, thoughtful, takes initiative. If the man would fear God from the very beginning, that's exactly how he would exercise his stewardship. He would fear God, and so he would realize that all the resources he has come from God, and he would want to give a good count to God for how he uses God's resources. He'd want to spend money wisely. He'd want to take initiative in investments. He'd want to be diligent and take a good accounting of everything that he does. So he'd be purposeful. That's not how many people think about their money, is it? So many people think about money as my money, and they have to spend it on their bills and whatever's left over they get to spend on themselves. That's definitely not how we think about stewardship biblically. Biblically, everything that we have comes from God, and we're going to give an account for all of it. And it's such a joy, such a pleasure to use, to steward the things God has given us, to further his kingdom, to bless other people, and to invest in gospel ministry. So fear of God and joyful participation in ministry. Let's keep those principles in mind as we listen to today's message. Turn your Bibles to Luke 16, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 13 of Luke chapter 16. Let's read the whole thing now. He also said, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for You can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I'm told that preaching on money is a sensitive topic, one that preachers naturally shy away from and probably should stay away from. Some seem to believe the preacher should address the subject of money only maybe in like a self-help fashion, like giving Dave Ramsey seminars and that kind of thing, giving people practical tips on budgeting and advice for financial planning and the like, but really confronting people about money. Preacher makes demands on people's money and it's considered out of bounds, off limits, as going too far as maybe looking like a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. For many, when they hear the preacher tackle the subject of money and finances and challenging the church, that'll be the last Sunday they attend your church if you talk about money. It is the stock and trade of false teachers to go after people's money, to bilk the guilty and the gullible for all that they can get away with. They promise them health, wealth, and prosperity. Promise them forgiveness. Promise them a lessening of a guilt and lessening of a burden just if they'll write that check and hand money over. They're going to take them for all that they can. It's a criminal enterprise in the name of religion, in the name of Christ. And I think it's a tactic of Satan to spoil the good reputation of all true churches that are dealing obediently with the subject and with the text of Scripture. When the subject of money comes up in the text, listen, that is what we're going to cover. This is his church. It's his word. And so it's his agenda that sets our agenda. We just be obedient. And as we can see in this text, and if you've ever looked at the rest of the chapter, this is about money. It's about people's attitudes about money, toward money, how people use money, how people misuse money. And I know this chapter is going to provoke you. And I pray that what Jesus says here in this chapter will not leave you unchanged because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure? Where's your heart? The Pharisees, as we see in the very next verse, after what we read there, verse 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And notice that they reacted by ridiculing Jesus' teaching, but they did not change. Others, perhaps less volatile than the Pharisees, but they too were indifferent to his teaching. They left unchanged. I am praying that Jesus' teaching here softens and instructs our hearts. I'm praying that his teaching will inform our thinking and inform our will. I'm praying that his teaching directs our giving. In verse 1, as Luke the narrator briefly sets the scene, you can see that he intends us to view these two chapters, Luke 15 and Luke 16, as connected. Jesus delivered the teaching of these two chapters on the same occasion. The previous teaching was delivered or directed to the Pharisees to answer their criticisms that came up in Luke 15, 2. And then in 16, 1, Luke tells us he also said, to the disciples. So it's the same crowd, same occasion, but Jesus has shifted the focus of his teaching to instruct those who are following along after him. So the 12 disciples, obviously they're in view, the very least, but there are also other men and women who are his true disciples. But as is usual, there are also those who are following along after Jesus. Their true nature 
Their true nature has yet to be revealed. And so this parable is meant to instruct true disciples, those who will discern the true meaning, but it's also going to serve as parables always do to sift and to separate the false disciples from the true. Those who fail to discern the meaning of the parable, they will lose interest and they will fall away. We know from Luke 15, 1 and 2, as the tax collectors and the sinners are coming to him, there are also the ever-present Pharisees and scribes that are there. They're always there to check up on him, always there ready to criticize him and depose him before the people. We see in verse 14, the Pharisees loved money, but they're not the only ones who loved money. How did the tax collectors, after all, how did they start down the road that led to their total betrayal of their countrymen, collaborating with the hated pagan Romans who were occupying their land? How'd they get down that road? How'd they start down that road the first place? Because they loved money. So because they were rich already and loved money is because they were poor and loved money. And they saw this as a pathway to getting money for themselves. Listen, we know this to be true, don't we? You don't have to be rich to be a lover of money. In fact, I know a number of rich people that don't love money at all. Very generous people. I find sometimes that it's the poorest who are the greatest lovers of money. We can see no one, young or old, rich or poor, female or male, no one is immune from this form of idolatry called the love of money. The love of which is the root of all kinds of evil. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, as we consider how the Lord wants us to use money, Jesus tells us a story of a landowner and his wasteful manager, or we could call him the prodigal steward. The charge against him in verse 2, it says, this man was wasting his possessions. That's that verb, diaskorpizo. It's the same verb that was used of the prodigal son back in Luke 15, 13, where he went to a foreign land and squandered his father's possessions. Same verb, same idea. Definitely one of the several points that connect these two chapters. But the point Jesus is making as he teaches his disciples is that it's not okay for prodigals to continue to act like prodigals. If they're coming to him, they need to drop that prodigal nature, stop squandering, stop wasting, stop acting like prodigals. Discipleship means stewardship. And all of us, no matter where we come from, whether we come from the lowbrow company of tax collectors and sinners, or whether we come from the highbrow company of Pharisees and scribes. Many of the Pharisees themselves were landowners. Many of them were wealthy businessmen. The scribes were highly educated. So whether we come from the lowbrow, gutter trash, trailer trash, whatever, or we come from the highbrow, from the academic elites and all the social elites, listen, all of us are prodigals. Because of the biblical principle of stewardship, namely that God owns everything and we own nothing. We're simply managers of resources that God entrusts to us. So I understand there is, biblically speaking, there is such thing as property ownership. There is money ownership. There is power and authority for us to do with that property and money what we're supposed to do. It's the basis of law. It's the basis of property law. It's the basis of a charge of theft and graft and embezzlement and all the rest is because 
Somebody owns something and you can't just take what doesn't belong to you. That's why socialism is bad because it is fundamentally a system of theft, of stealing. Listen, we need to understand more fundamentally, more basic to that is the fact that God owns everything. We own nothing. He entrusts to us what we have. He entrusts to some more and to others less. That's by his good and sovereign and wise design. It's for his purposes. So for us to complain about what somebody else has and we don't, like this whole social justice thing of oppressor and oppressed and victims and victimizers and all the rest, it's fundamentally based on greed. It's fundamentally those who have less, who are coveting and desiring They're loving money and they want to get it from those who have earned it or those who have inherited it. All of us though, it doesn't matter if we're Christian, non-Christian, everybody on this earth, we are stewards of what God has given to us. God has entrusted resources to us and every single person on this planet at every time in every place in history is going to give an account to God for their stewardship. We too as Christians, we need to think about that because now that we're saved, as I said, discipleship means stewardship. Discipleship means now we're awakened to our stewardship. Now we have because of the regeneration of the spirit, because we have a new nature given to us from God, because we've been set free from our sins, because we're born again, because we have been justified, declared righteous by God because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. We are, as Jesus called us in verse eight, we are sons of light. That is the light has been turned on for us. Now we understand we have a stewardship that our money is not our own. It's to be used for his purposes. Everything we have is a stewardship from God. And we all will give an account to him for how we have managed what he's entrusted to us. So in going through this chapter together, we're going to see that since we're all prodigals in some sense, so we all need to confess the sin of squandering resources God has entrusted to us. We all need to come to the place where we repent. So we need to listen attentively today. We need to learn from our Lord and we need to learn to obey him in this. We will find that his way of stewardship, the greatest blessing on earth, apart from our salvation, it's the greatest blessing. Cheerful joy, gratitude comes out of exercising a good and righteous stewardship before God. So Jesus begins his instruction with another parable. He tells about a landowner and his wasteful manager. We can see that verses one to eight are laid out in literary chiasm. A chiasm, that's a key or a chi, is a Greek letter, looks like an X to us. But that X with the outside stanzas of that X are parallel. And as you get closer to the center, you've got parallel stanzas. And then you get to the center and the main meat is there. So we see verse one introduces us to the owner and the manager. And verse eight, then at the end, Parallel thought, it provides us with the owner's reaction to the manager. So owner and manager, verse one, owner and manager, verse eight. The next set of stanzas are parallel as well. Verses two and three portray the manager's problem. What is his problem? He's out of a job. Verses five to seven show him trying to solve that problem, trying to fix the problem of not having a job. The central stanza then is verse four. And that central stanza is this man's what we might call his eureka moment. This is showing us in this moment of clarity, as he put it in the prodigal son terms, he comes to himself, shows us his motivation. That's what is at the center. What's his motivation? 
Look at verse four. It's in order that, it's a purpose clause there, in order that people may receive me into their houses. Jesus comes back to that. He revisits that central point when it comes to verse nine and starts applying this, working out the implications for us. He says in verse nine, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. He's pointing back to the prodigal. In order that, that's another purpose clause, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's the central idea found in verse four and then repeated in verse nine as he starts to work out the implications. So that basic structure in mind, let's get into the details of the parable. It starts with point one, an existential emergency. An existential emergency. You look again at verse one, it says there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. I mentioned earlier, this is a notoriously difficult parable to interpret primarily due to our distance from the culture, our distance from the economic practices that Jesus assumes in the parable here. But you got to understand everybody in the audience listening to Jesus on this particular occasion, they're going to be tracking with this parable with no problem whatsoever. In fact, they would be loving this story. It's not a story about virtue as we can plainly see, but rather we see in here characterized the impish cleverness of the main character who is a scoundrel. Jesus introduces us though, first to the aggrieved party, an extremely wealthy man. This man is the owner of vast tracts of farmland, many thousands of acres that he rents out to tenant farmers. And these farmers paid rent, There's a fixed price of the produce, such as we see there, olive oil and wheat. And then that's just two of the representative crops that are produced on his land. If you scan down to verse six, you can see the rent for one farmer. It says is a hundred measures of oil. That's his original bill. His rent, 100 measures of oil. That's about 875 gallons of olive oil worth about a thousand denarii, which a denarius is a day's wage. So the rent, a thousand denarii is about a three years wages for a day laborer. Three years wages paid his rent to farm on this guy's land. If we estimate about 20 bucks an hour, this tenant farmer was paying nearly $150,000 to grow and harvest olives on this man's farmland. Pretty big bill, isn't it? Down in verse seven, the rent for another farmer is a hundred measures of wheat. The term for measure there is core, which is between 10 and 12 bushels. So 100 cores of wheat is about 1,000, 1,200 bushels of wheat that he paid the landowner in rent. 1,000 bushels of wheat was the yield of about 100 acres of land. So before modern farming, that's not too bad. That was a worth of between 2,500 and 3,000 denarii, which is at the low end. That's about seven years worth of wages. So again, estimating 20 bucks an hour, the tenant farmer is paying at least at the low end, $350,000 to grow wheat on this man's land. So just try to step back from that. What this means is if you think about the high rents, this represents huge acreage. This guy's estate is vast. There's lots of olives and wheat. This is a vast farming enterprise. Rents like this mean these tenant farmers, they themselves are very wealthy men as well. So again, Jesus is telling a story And he's telling a story that has magnanimous, huge proportions to it. This is something that everybody in the crowd is like imagining this hugely wealthy person. He's introduced us to an extremely wealthy man. And it's one who 
obviously requires the services of a very skilled, very competent steward, such as this steward. Stewards, managers, the term is oikonomos. Oikonomos can refer to several different kinds of managers. Managers of households, they, they provide oversight to the household slaves, like the one we met back in Luke 12, 42. Oikonomos can refer to a civic official, like a city treasurer. We see that in Erastus mentioned. He's ministering there with Paul in Rome, in Romans 16, 23. But here, this oikonomos refers to an estate manager. This is a legally authorized agent of the owner. This man has authority to broker contracts. He's like these rental agreements with the tenant farmers. He's responsible for keeping track of of all the accounts. He's responsible to collect rent when it's due. Now this landowner, clearly portrayed here as a gentleman farmer, he's a respected man in the community. He's trustworthy. He's an honorable man. And we know that quite simply because if he weren't, other wealthy men would not be willing to do business with him. They do business with men that they trust. This man is trustworthy. Someone, we can see in verse one, again, to commend this landowner to us, someone, according to verse one, is looking out for him. Someone is concerned about this landowner's interests. Person is unnamed in the story, but he's crucially important to the story because this anonymous person, or perhaps we could say these anonymous people, they see the landowner as aggrieved by the steward. He's a victim of the manager's bad management. He's misusing the man's funds through wastefulness. Notice the steward here is not charged with fraud or embezzlement. It's important. He's not stealing from the landowner. The complaint is not that he's stealing from the tenants. The complaint is that he's squandering possessions. He's wasteful. So whoever it is or whoever they are, they report this prodigal manager to the owner. And that prompts a meeting. Verse two, and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. (laughs) The owner, he's on top of it, isn't he? He hears the report, calls the man in, summarily fires him. Like any careful owner would be. This is how he acts. He didn't become rich by being neglectful, by letting things go. He's diligent. He acts quickly. He deals with the problem and he summarily fires this prodigal manager. A couple things to notice here. First, notice that Jesus says nothing about the steward's response. The manager, by the way, steward, manager, same interchangeable terms. I'll use them interchangeably, so don't be confused by that, steward, manager. But the manager is silent in the presence of the owner. He says nothing. It's probably his best quality in that moment, isn't it? doesn't answer the owner's question, doesn't protest his firing. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't even plead for his job. He just takes it. What does that tell you? He's guilty. And he knows it. He knows that the master knows it. He knows the gig is up. He's got no case to plead. And so very wisely, he says nothing. First hint about his shrewdness. First time we hear him speak is in the next verse. And he's talking to himself as he comes to himself. He formulates the plan, but in the presence of the owner, He's silent. He says nothing. Why not? Well, because he's guilty. And second, because he seems here to spot a tiny window of opportunity in the way that the master has been dealing with him. Notice the master is simply firing him. He's simply letting him go. Now, remember this steward, he's pictured here, 
not as a slave. Many stewards, Okanamas, they were slaves. But this steward is a free man. So for this man in particular, it means personal freedom, yes, to be free in his person. But listen, this also means responsibility. This means a legal responsibility for him as a steward. This means a fiscal responsibility that he owes not only to this man, but to the whole profession, to the whole community. This master is letting him go. That's it. There's no SEC investigation pursuant to legal action. There are no public charges. There's no yanking of his license. There's no exacting repayment of whatever he had squandered. No, there's no beating in the office. Not even a harsh word spoken. The master is being remarkably gentle here. He's dealing him with the utmost kindness. May none of us be like that unrighteous steward, taking our Lord's grace for granted. May we not see his patience as a reason to not repent of our sins, viewing his mercy as a reason to take more advantage. Let us instead take hold of our stewardship. We've just barely scratched the surface of this parable, and already we're challenged to spend some time reflecting on the question, what kind of steward am I of the resources God has so graciously provided for me? Am I a grateful steward, or do I find myself always wanting more? This series is called How to Be a Faithful Steward, and it can be found on our website, pillaroftruthradio.com. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message on Instagram at Pillar of Truth. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next time on Pillar of Truth.